knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I can tell you real easy. Oh, tell me. Is that I never watch cartoons. I watch Primo's Truth. I watch <laughs> Walker's K Chronicles. I watch Jose Wahebi. I watch Bill Dance. That was my cartoons, and I was totally freaking obsessed with it. I remember my friends playing with Lincoln Log and I'm staring at the TV watching Truth About Turkey Hunt or Flip Pallet riding his motorcycle or something like that. That's what I was obsessed with. And like, still to this day, I'm still as obsessed with it as the first time I saw it on TV. And it gets worse. Is the thing. I just keep <laughs> getting more into it. I think at some point in time, there would be a time where I would slack off, but there's so much to learn. And that's really what I think I'm obsessed with is the learning thing is what can I learn new? That's really what gets me going. This is Graham Taylor, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Well, that was Graham Taylor, and... If you ever hunt with this guy, you'll understand that little story. This guy is obsessed. He is completely obsessed, and he's my favorite person, really, outside of my family, my dad, my boys. Graham's probably my favorite person to hunt with, and uh, every time I go, I learn something from him. He's a great woodsman. He's a great uh, hunter. And he knows a tremendous amount about his quarry. So this is going to be a great conversation with Graham. I know you're going to enjoy it. And not just hunting, fishing too. Graham is, Graham is a great fisherman as well as a great hunter. But that all goes in together to make him a great woodsman and just to know a lot about what's going on in the natural world. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this podcast. Let me tell you a couple things before we get started. We have a website saltwaterexperience.com that has undergone some major changes. Lots of great stuff up there, including more articles and videos and behind the scenes and photos and all kinds of stuff there. So go to saltwaterexperience.com if you're interested in what we're doing uh, on the television show and what we're doing on the water. We just got back from a big uh, shoot down there at Hawks K and Hawks K is looking better than ever. The fishing was as good as it's ever been, and the weather actually cooperated this time, which makes for me to be very, very happy. We have another dedicated website to this show, Tom Roland Podcast, T-O-M-R-O-W-L-A-N-D podcast.com. You can go there. There's uh, the, the articles there are a little bit more robust as far as the guests, and uh, it's a little more podcast-oriented. And if you would, do me a favor. It would make 
such a big difference if uh, you would go to iTunes, if that's where you listen to the show, and rate and review it. If you could give it a five-star rating, I'd be so happy. And if you could review it for me, that would be even better. Those reviews keep adding up, and I would love to get a few more. That tends to make a big difference on uh, on the way that the the podcast is, is searched and um, the more positive reviews and ratings we have, the the more people can find it. Uh, you can also send me an email, podcast at saltwaterexperience.com, podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. If you want to suggest a guest or you want to talk about anything that we've discussed on the podcast, lots of people send me a guest suggestion or just thoughts on the podcast, thoughts on the guests, whatever. I love to hear it. I, I really uh, love hearing from you guys. So uh, if you want to send a pod, uh, an email, that's the place to send it, podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. And all of this stuff is being made possible because of our good friends at Waypoint. And if you don't know what Waypoint is, Waypoint is a place where you can find streaming video content of from all the best producers in the outdoor space. And there's over 70 now. And if you're listening to this, you're probably possibly more familiar with the fishing than you are with the hunting. I don't know. Maybe we've got some, uh, we talk about fishing a little more than we do hunting on this podcast, even though I enjoy both of them equally, just a little different. But Waypoint has 70 different producers producing the best content. You can go check it out at waypointtv.com. You can find out exactly how to get it on any device that you want. It is on so many different devices and it's all free to you. So uh, go there, waypointtv.com, and check it out. All right, here we go with Graham Taylor. Here we go with Graham Taylor. Graham, glad you came, man. Thanks for coming. I've really been waiting to do this with you. When I started the podcast, you were very high on the list of the short list of people that I wanted to have on the podcast. Graham and I started again with the Instagram thing. I stalk all these people on Instagram and then I go go fish and hunt with them. And some of them turn into really good friends like yourself. What have you been up to? Oh, you know, same old, same old. Hunting, fishing, working and working on the land. Well, trying, trying to get better all the time. Just, just one thing after another. Just always something to learn. So with your hunting and fishing all the time, like every time I talk to you, there's another season that's come around the corner. and like this morning, it was the uh, blue wing teal mm-hmm. opener. So you're doing that. How do you how do you split up? What does your year look like as far as ah, that's, hunting and fishing? I don't really ever have an agenda. I just kind of go with the flow based on what's ever peaking or like uh, whatever really good. I'm obsessed with the peaks of things like. The north wind came down, so the teal are riding down. I know that, so I like to be where right there in the peak. Or tides are working out where the redfish are going to pop in Mobile. I like to be there for that. Just I'm kind of obsessed with the peaks of. What does it look like from January to to December? Like what's happening in January? What are you doing in, in January? February. Well, our deer rut kind of peaks after Christmas. It'd be real hard into that. Uh, we got this lump fishery where these 
yellowfin come up on the salt dome, which is really a lot of fun. So I do a lot of that. February is also a good time to be at a steam plant in Tennessee. <laughs> be doing that. Also like going black drum fishing and stuff on real slick days with my buddy Paul. That's always popping in July and February. Yeah. It's the problem. My friends call me and they tell me like something's going off. And if it's something unique and different, I'm drawn to it and I like right. to go do it. And But then after February, then from what I know of you, that's when the real season starts for you, the turkey season. Yeah. End of February, I'll start kind of hooking up with groups of turkeys, finding them, shadowing them. You know, I started getting real into taking pictures of them. And so my season starts kind of whenever. Mm-hmm. Normally, I just pay attention to when they kind of start breeding and packing up. And that's when my season starts and ends, whenever yeah. they separate. So hunting season is... It's just that it's hunting season, but it's always kind of when the turkeys start doing their thing is when I like to start my season, taking pictures of them and the stuff that I've started doing now is, which has opened my world up so much to learning things. And uh, it, it keeps me out there a lot more because it's just kind of new. To the me. picture taking? Mm-hmm. Well, because, was well, that because you have to get closer to them? Yeah. I used to think I was like, man, if I can get close to them, I'll get a good picture. Now I'm like, if I can get close to them, with the light behind me, with the hens, you know, that, that it's kind of so many variables. Yeah. Always now, it used to be when I was turkey hunting regular, I would want to call the gobbler up and shoot it. Now I want to be with the harem, right. with all of them. So you kind of got to do things a little different. You can't call as much because you lose the girls. And you, you kind of got to be more, you, you got to use a lot more woodsmanship than conventional sit down and kill the turkey. Right. So. Right, and that that's the same thing that I learned with, with shooting the television show. Is it's one thing to just go out there and catch a fish, and then it's another thing to go out there and catch a fish in a tournament when somebody says go, and that's when you're looking for a particular fish. So that adds, that adds a lot to the equation. You're not just trying to catch any tarpon or any redfish. You're trying to catch one of a particular size, and you're trying to do it under any weather conditions when somebody says go. And then later... It's now you're trying to film something and you're trying to do it in a way that you're just like you're talking about. You got to have the light behind you and you got to do all these things. And what that did for me for sure was make me a lot better fisherman every time that that happens. Because in the beginning, it's like this impossible situation because you're just hoping that you can get close to a turkey. (laughs) And then as you get better and better and better at it, now you're like, well, I don't want to get close to a turkey over there. I want to get close to a turkey where the light's going to be just perfect, and then I'm going to get this really good picture. Have you seen that that, how has that changed what you're doing in preparation for these these situations? Are you doing more scouting and then then trying to figure out, okay, well, they're over there at this time, so I need to figure out how I can get around the field and and see them over here, which might be totally different than the way that you would hunt them. Yeah, I do a lot more scouting. I do, well, scouting, I do a lot more shadowing. I try to make sure that they never know that I'm around them or trying to be to photographing them or anything. I do, and I also spend a lot of time in deep thought about where I'm going to set up. And, I, and you know, I'm, I've learned a lot about turkey hunting and killing turkeys from the people who I've been brought up by. You know, being starting guiding when I was 17, being around some salty people, you you get thrown down to the floor real quick and realize that you don't know much at all, mm-hmm. especially when you're around these old timers. 
one thing I've learned from turkey hunting is you can know all from turkey taking turkey photography or turkey hunting in general is you can learn all you want to, but if when you get to this level of feel when you're out there and you start to kind of feel it and I'm not trying to get weird on you, but you kind of get told what to do based on everything you know and what you kind of getting told to do by the big man. And then you overlay that into where you need to be and everything comes together. It's just, man, it gives me chill bumps. I just love it. That was like tarpon fishing is real new to me, but I almost went more days than I care to tell you about because tarpon to me was a lot like setting up on turkeys, like, being where they're going to be at that tide, at a certain time, there'd be no fish, and then they start showing up when you thought they were, and that's just another game. Well, I like turkey hunting. About right. The same, you know, I just, I find myself, I think I can tell that's going to be a problem for me. <laughs> well, it's a problem for a lot of people, the tarpon and the turkey. The problem with the tarpon and the turkey is it happens almost at the same time of the year. So it, sometimes you have to choose where you were fishing this year. That's kind of a fall fishery which is good for your habits of being a turkey hunter and a tarpon <laughs> fisherman. But that's a tough one when it's happening at the same time of the year. I remember one spring break, I, was, I had the kids down in, uh, in Key West, and we were, we were fishing, and the weather went bad. We got a cold front, and we're looking at the calendar, and like, well, it's opening day, like, tomorrow. Should we just pack it up and, and take off, and let's, let's go hunt turkeys? And uh, we look at the weather and we decide, yeah, let's do that. And good thing was, is that we had just as much fun doing that as we did. Well, we actually had more fun being successful at turkey hunting than we did being unsuccessful at tarpon <laughs> fishing <laughs> because the weather went bad, you know? Yeah. But the problem is, is that at least our places are, lo- are a long way away from one another. So after the turkey season, then what? May May's kind of a good time. I mean, they're, they're, I turkey on a little bit here. I turkey on Tennessee a lot uh, in May, and then may go to some different states. But, I, you know, that's kind of fading for me the older I get. Now I just like to hang around with my turkeys mm-hmm. because I'm catching and releasing them. So, you know, I. You mean with the, with I the camera? Pictures, yeah. yeah, I see them and I take their picture on it. And then the next day I got to reset back up on them or go get another one or something. So I never really get sick of them. But May. You know, it's a great striper time in Tennessee, big mm-hmm. ones. Yeah. That's when they're really up and you get your big ones. I would say May is a, <clears throat> would be the prime time for for that. And May's also a really good sword fishing time off Orange Beach is when we catch a lot of our swordfish. You know, they have this one little area they go to and during that month. They stay there all year, but there seems to be like a, a grouping of them mm-hmm. during that time. And so May, I do that. And also in May, I got this little striper spot, and they start trickling in there, especially the biggest of the big. Late May is a good time to be on them. Mm-hmm. And while they're still green, so to speak, they hadn't been boogered with, they're moving into a new area, and they're pretty active. So May's, May's a fun time. And then you also have your largemouth bass that, yeah. we, have, uh, that we have had many successful trips on. And <laughs> yeah. what, what time of the year is that for you? So uh, they're coming off bedding May. It's not really, it's okay time, but they just, they hadn't really loaded back up from bedding. July is really good. The hot times when they plump back up from, Mm -hmm. from doing that. We don't mess with them that much during the spring, although I'm sure you could own bed, but it's just not the way that uh, we fish. And, and, you know, 
it's it's dangerous for the for the fish in the areas where we fish to pull them off bed and have something happen. So we just do it in July when mm-hmm. we know where they're going to be when they're going to be there. Yeah, and then the fall looks like tarpon fishing, red fishing, mm-hmm. getting ready for the duck season to start. So yeah, yeah, you you really intrigue me because like I have extremely passionate about fishing and that occupies all my time but somehow you're able to be equally as passionate about many different types of fishing and many different types of hunting and be really good at all of them and so what i well no you you really are um and especially the turkey hunting um and especially like what you've been able to do with the stripers and the largemouth bass and it's really impressive but I just want to kind of know, like, how did this all start for me, for you? Like, you you have such a wide area of interest and area of experience, all the way from sword fishing to turkey hunting. How did this How did this start for you as a kid? Like, I can tell you real easy. Oh, tell me. Is that I never watched cartoons. I watched pr- the Primo's Truth. I watched <laughs> Walker's K Chronicles. I watched Jose Wahebi. I watched. You know, Bill Dance, that was my cartoons, and I was totally freaking obsessed with it. I remember my friends playing with Lincoln Logs, and I'm staring at the TV watching Truth About Turkey Hunting or Flip Pallet riding his motorcycle or something like that. That's what I was obsessed with. And, like, still to this day, I'm still as obsessed with it as the first time I saw it on TV, and it gets worse is the thing. I just <laughs> keep getting more into it. I think at some point in time, there would be a time where I would – slack off but there's so much to learn and that's really what i think i'm obsessed with is the learning thing is what can i what can i learn new that's really what gets me going yeah is learning something that i didn't know or you know and a lot of times the things that i learned in the outdoors were the most common sense things that i've overlooked you know like what yeah so much you know like setting up on a turkey you know Best ways to kill a turkey are don't get too eager. Don't let them know you're, you're, you're after them. And if you're in a good spot, sit there. You know, thing about feeding a tarpon that I never know is one of the most, especially our beach tarpon is one of the most common sense thing that I've never, I've never thought about. I'm not, I, I mean, I'm sure people who are listening to this know exactly what I'm talking about, but I'm, I'm not going to say it. The redfish thing, like, you know, you're in an area with bait. Just wait for them to pop. Don't be running all over the bay waiting. You know, if you're in an area that's a good greenfield, I relate it to hunting. Is the food's there, everything's there. If you just follow it, eventually, I, predators will be there at some yeah. point in time. Yeah. So, all kinds of different things like that, that get me going. I can't really say. So, when you were a kid, did you um did you just spend time watching watching this stuff on TV, or mm-hmm. you were out there doing it? Yeah. So. uh when I was in second grade, I guess my parents got a divorce, and I was kind of on my own. My not really on my own. My dad would take me hunting and fishing, but not to the point that it would fill my fuel my fire. So we had a country club right down the road, and in the morning, I learned real quick when I was young the best way to catch something is something, is something on the hook with a heartbeat, <laughs> not something with a plastic. You know, none of that those lures or anything. So most days when I was younger, eight. You know, starting maybe younger than that. Heck, I'd get dropped off at the country club, and I had my rod and reels, a pellet pistol shoved in my golf bag, and 
a couple golf clubs for effect. <laughs> and I would be on every golf course lake that there was all day, every day, so much so that there's a sign up now that says when you can fish, how long, and all that. We were going down the creek, catching creek chubs, putting them in cast nets, walking with five-gallon buckets, going to the bass lake, and wearing these fish out, and we were snagging carp and tying grass flies and throwing them out there for carp to bite <laughs> them. And just, that was uh, what I did, you know, what we did every day. Who was this with, your brother? My brother and uh, a guy named Philip Mash, Bergen Ken, a guy who I still fish with today, one of my good striper buddies. That's what we, we did every day. And that occupied our summer. And then we'd go to the hunting clubs or what I thought, you know, it was a, it was a, drinking clubs for the dads and the hunting clubs for the kids yeah that was a fun part of my childhood and i didn't really learn that much about hunting until i started slowing down and not having people take me uh-huh you know. and what what when does that happen like when you get a driver's license well yeah, when i was well, definitely when i got a driver's license but, then you're kind of on your own i mean I that's on a big... my own the first time i went turkey hunting and my dad went took me out there and he showed me how to do it he showed me what to do and then i was on my own he didn't he did not take me anymore. He would go himself, but he would not. He left me to learn on my own. It was hard for a long time, but I started learning that I needed to find out people who were better at a young age and learn from them. Looking at TV, looking at whatever. There was no internet like right now. Kids can go on YouTube, and if they really have the fire, they should be able to learn a pretty good amount of stuff. We didn't have that back mm -hmm. then. You know, we had VHS cassette tapes and books like by tom kelly or something like that but then when i was 15 i had these two guys george mayfield and max adams that were very instrumental in teaching me how to do things but they too would kick me out and have it be on my own i never really had anybody walk my hand through it except for maybe this guy max adams from livingston he helped me more as a woodsman and a turkey hunter than anybody but dad would not and i'm glad he didn't and and because it, it fired me up because he could have easily taken me out there and given me layups. Did he do that on purpose? Yeah. Like he's like, okay, you want to learn how to, you want to be a good turkey hunter. You're going to have to work through a lot of this stuff on your own. Yep. And don't you think that that's, that's how it has to happen for everyone? I mean, if you, you can be pretty good if you go on guided trips all the time, but the people who are the best are the people who have worked out all of these things on their own, if you ask me. It's good to get, you know, to work a bunch of things out on your own, but then also have these small times where you go fishing with somebody else or go hunting with somebody else. And you're like, oh, yeah. okay. And then you go back and you apply that and then you run into all these other issues. And then that's where I've seen, you know, in my own hunting and fishing, where I get a much better understanding is when I'm just super frustrated. Like the time that I brought you up to our turkey property. I'm super frustrated with these turkeys. And then you come and you make it look so easy. And part of it was the day. I mean, we had that nice rainy day. But, I mean, you started calling these turkeys and they came running like I've never seen. They run when I call, but it's the other way. They, they go the other way. But they came. And, and so then that gave me such motivation to practice my calling, to start doing things a little bit differently to take every little thing that I learned from you and try to apply it myself. But I feel like if I was only going with guides every time or only going with people like you, 
I would never develop the same understanding of the bird or of the fish that I do if I have these times of serious frustration yeah. because nothing is going well. I can't find them. They're not where they're supposed to be. They were here yesterday, but they don't want, there's no sign that they've even been here since yesterday. And you're just like, man, I don't, I mean, as soon as you feel like sometimes that you know a lot about something, then the next day comes and you realize you know absolutely nothing about it. I think those are the moments, as frustrating as they are, and and often, you know, they make you want to quit, you know, and sometimes you do for the day. You're like, I'm just done with this for today. And you go home and you start thinking about it all the way home on that drive. But if you didn't have those moments, I don't think that you would ever become very good at any of these things. You would be a great client, right? But not not a great hunter yourself. Yeah. You Do you did, think that's what your dad was doing for you? For sure. And, On purpose. And, and you just said something that really keys something under me is thinking about something after you do it, like meditate, feeling it, thinking about it, letting it consume you. And then I think you learn more by your own thoughts than you really think you do, you know, just, you know, at the end of the day, like he went that way, he did this, he did that. And when you get home and you sit down, think about that. Don't just go hunt with a lot of people. They go hunting, they just throw it out. They put their stuff up and go do whatever they're doing. But if you can have any time during that day to really get and give super deep thought to what went on during that day, I think you learn a lot about that day. Then instead of just, I'm done hunting, maybe tomorrow we'll get them. Right. In, a, in the same blind, in the same location, in the same everything, but nothing changes. Yeah. Even with that input of, wow, this didn't work very well yesterday. Maybe we should change things up. Probably just a hair. Right. You know, you're probably doing, most of the time you're doing the right thing or just a hair off. Yeah. You know, it seems like with fishing too, it's, well, a little bit more with fishing, you can be way off, but. You know, I see most uh, turkey hunters are really doing the right thing. They're just a little off, you know, whether it be patience level set up. They're very close. Yeah. So let's talk about how you got to know so much about turkeys. So when you get your driver's license or that time in your life, you're starting to hunt on your own a little bit, getting a little help from people here and there. But then at some point you become a turkey guide, right? Yeah. How did that happen for you? Uh, well, in 2005, I did, I, well, I wanted to do the competition call <laughs> so I could say, so I could be, you know, I wanted to see what I, I it was something to do. And the people like Sadler McGraw and Chris Parrish and Matt Van Sice and all these guys, I was like, I was like man, they're, they're freaking, these guys are good. And so one day I just entered the world turkey calling contest with a call that I got out of a store. And I started, you talk about stage, right? I stepped up on that stage. I remember I had a Matt Van Sice three-read call. I only had one call. Most of these guys had three calls for each one of their calls. So they would yelp on one call, cut on one call, kiki on something else, purr on another. I'm sitting here with my trusty crusty, so to speak. <laughs> and, uh, you know, long story short, I made it to the finals of the Worlds that year, and I've never done another turkey calling contest. But once I, sh you know, they kind of did away with the Worlds. Now it's the Grand Nationals and things like that, but, when I saw that I made it to the finals, I just threw that ticket in the trash and went ready to go for, you know, now I'm ready to hunt. I, I know that I can call pretty good. You know, you're 16, 17, 18, you're learning confidence in yourself. You know, as a young kid, every little confidence booster was a huge step. Yeah. And, uh, you know, especially when you're sitting to that turkey, you know, whether you, if you, it, like, 
get a lot of people get cotton mouth or afraid to call or if it, especially with a friction call you're afraid to touch it mm-hmm. you know all that things in the moment but the uh, so i did that and westervelt my friend uh kenny freeman uh, knew the guy who's at westervelt which is the biggest uh commercial hunting operation in alabama and uh still is this day and i said i want to work at westervelt do you think that's possible and get the standard first couple laughs out of the way and all the long story short they gave me a shot it was a shot it wasn't a job and i was remember i was a freshman in alabama i'd already spent my time at this place called holly cattle farm so let me back up a hair the the place that i could hunt was about 30 minutes to an hour from high school i would go there every day during turkey season during high school whether it be an hour or 30 minutes to which spot i i i went Mm-hmm. Every day during from the time I was sixteen till I'm fast forwarding out of college, and I learned a lot. I killed a few turkeys, some renegade stuff went on, some learning, you know, <laughs> all kinds of things went on during that period trying to kill the turkey to you know just you know really free for all. And knowing now I'm here in a guidance situation, oh, you got to kill these things right each day. You've got to perform, and excuses don't count when you come back to the lodge with no bird. I remember there's a guy, Steve Cotney, he gave me the shot. He's He was, still this day, I owe him more than anything for my outdoor career than he knows. He, he he may not ever listen to this podcast. He probably doesn't know, but he was our head guide at Westerville. And Steve stands at probably six, seven. He's he's a giant. He's a gentle giant. He walks out there. But most days, they came back out of a 45-day season. Most days, he would come back with the turkey. So with this guy named Jeff Oglesby, he was the other guy. And this doesn't have anything to do with calling. These guys could go out there with no call and come back with the turkey. And so that, and I started learning tons about woodsmanship and where you need to place your butt and how you need to be confident and be still. You may can yelp at him or get him to gobble at you a couple of times, but you better sit there for a long time if you really want to kill one. Like if I was, if I was starving today and had to kill a turkey or somebody said, I'll give you a certain, certain amount of money to kill a turkey, I'd go out there, yelp at him one time. If he gobbled, I'd sit there until he died. <laughs> and that would be how you would kill him. They're always normally going to come unless they're super harmed up. And then you got to know that and full. So there's this guy, Junior, at Westervelt. He was 90 years old. And he literally came back with the turkey every day. <laughs> 90 at 90. He did ballroom dancing and got a turkey hunts. And so he really attracted me and he lived in Tuscaloosa. So most days to guide, I would ride back and forth to guide with him uh-huh. and just listen to him talk and, and learning from him and, and learning about slowing down. So that's when I started slowing down in my turkey hunting. And, you know, I'm, I'm first one to force one on, on the turkey, but I, it's all really about slowing down big time if you really want to kill a lot of turkeys. So I learned a lot about slowing down from him. I learned a lot about habitat from several people, which is all, all this comes full circle to making you a good turkey hunter is, is, is you got to understand where they want to be, why they want to be there. And then you got to understand what not to do. I think more than what to do. Learning what not to do at Westervelt was, was fast because now I got some, a hunter who's normally there. He's on a corporate deal. Half the time they want to be there. Half the time they don't. Yeah. Probably his first turkey hunt. You got to assume that. And so, how do I, you know, I can call the turkey up and kill it on my own, but how do I get this guy to kill it and this guy to move right? So I started learning about that. And this is when you're 18, 19? 
19, 20, yeah. freshman in college. Okay. I didn't do any fraternities or that deal. I was, opening day of bow season, I was sitting in the fraternity room, and they told me that I was having them getting ready to have to miss the day because I had to go do something. I walked right out of that room. <laughs> I never did another fraternity ever. All my friends were in the fraternities, but not me. I did not. <laughs> Straight down to Sumter County. It was a 30-minute ride to my fraternity house where I went every day. And so uh, I didn't go to school in the spring in college. I did miss the spring semester. I just worked at Westerville and turkey hunted in the afternoons when I was done working at Westerville. So I would say I learned most of my stuff after I got done working at Westerville each day when I'd go hunt midday turkeys with my buddy George and Mac just because they're, 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 they literally are the best best Indian outdoorsmen that I know to this day. What makes them so good? I mean, to hear that coming from you is is a pretty pretty high compliment. And what I think it, it's uh it's kind of a thing where they're in the woods a lot, and they just you know you just kind of start to feel things different. I think when you're in the woods a lot, and things come to you that may not. You know, it's just things. I think you know. I don't know. They do it a lot. They did it a lot all the time, their whole life. And I think whenever you do something like that a lot with tons of passion. In an open mind, you're going to be really good at it. Mm-hmm. And none of them are know-it-alls. They are always looking to learn, whether it be from a little kid, anything. And they go every day. And, you know, I just think they're really attached and really, really with their environment and, and gotten burned a lot of time. Yeah. The more times you fail. Let me you ask learn. you this. When you got a guy like yourself or those two guys that have been doing this their entire life and they're super plugged in and basically killing a turkey every day, or being successful at whatever they're doing every day. And then you throw in to their world game cameras, electronics. How does that affect a person like that? Because I know how it did with my own fishing career. I learned how to navigate in the Florida Keys in the dark without GPS, right? And then when we got GPS and it got better, at first it wasn't a big advantage, but then it got better and better and better. And now it's like, whoa. I can do some things now that I never dreamed possible before. So when you've got these guys and yourself that are doing this and growing up in the woods and just spending tons of time in the woods, and now you have something like a game camera that becomes affordable, available, how does that change things for for people like that? For them, they're unaffected because they don't use them. They don't even look at them. For me, it changed me big time. It let me know whether I'm looking at a two-year-old, whether I'm looking at a hen-up turkey, whether I'm looking at a pack of jakes, you know, whether I got predators on them, all kinds of things. They changed my whole world. I mean, if you looked at my phone right now, you know, I'm watching deer grow up right now all over my each spot, kind of trying to figure their core areas out because we got bow season getting ready to start. But uh, game cameras really helped me a lot for turkey hunting uh, in a lot of ways. They help confirm what you're already thinking, hopefully. They help confirm what you're already thinking. A lot of times they confirm what you weren't thinking at all. They, uh, you know, you shouldn't put them where they're feeding. You should put, if you're going to use a trail camera for a turkey hunt, you should put them in intersections of roads, someplace you're going to catch them roaming. Now, I wouldn't, I, your chances of catching them on a feeding spot is, is, I mean, yeah, you can set up a trail camera on a clover field and get the picture of the turkey sometime during that day. But if you set the picture, you set the camera up on the intersection, now you kind of figure out when he's roaming, when he leaves his hens, when he's going to start to walk, when he's vulnerable, those kind of things, rather than it's real hard to kill a turkey where he's feeding. 
because they're sitting there, they're picking in that clover, they're picking in that chufa. And if you're not already there, it's kind of hard to get. It's going to be real hard to get ever. And so to get there, like that, that seems like the way that I hunt. I, I know where they're going to feed and I get there and I sit a lot of times and I'll, I'll sit all day and I will kill that turkey eventually. But a lot of times he's at 80 yards, 90 yards when it may take, he might not feed over here at, at 30 yards until tomorrow. So you just plan on killing that. You're, you're putting in many days to kill that bird and you know where he's going to be. And some days he's there and some days it all works together and you think you're a genius. But most of the time he hangs out about 130 yards away from you and there's not much you can do. But that, that intersection idea is, is really big for me. And that could change a lot because I'm doing, I'm doing some of that stuff, but not using the cameras like you're talking about. You want to know something else that's kind of interesting that I've started to do over the last several years? It's called AB. And uh, I've hunted lots of different states and get stuck in lots of different areas that I don't know. And so ABC is you take a track of land, say it be square. Let's just use a piece of paper, for example. Square piece of paper, it comes out of the ground. A, and you take it and you go straight down the middle, not down the side, straight down the middle of the piece of paper a long way. A being the front of it, B being the middle, and C being the end. <clears throat> and a turkey's a lot more affected by your calling than you think they are. So you take a a square piece of paper. The key to going into a new track of land, and this is I'm talking about like if you went on a hunt somewhere and you're on a new track of land that you don't know. So A, you go to A. The key to it is not to walk all over the land or when the landowner says, let me ride you around and show you all my spots. That's kind of a good idea. But today with the with aerials and the phone satellites and all that, you don't have to do all that. Low in, Least impact is the best. Mm-hmm. So this is where ABC comes in. So I walk to A, I call. Maybe nothing happens. Maybe one gobbles real far away. If that happens, I might need to think about sitting back at A, but normally nothing's going to happen. So I move to B, which is whatever. Say it'd be a thousand acre track of land. You try to have an A, B, and a C, not any, you know, split it three ways. So I'm walk from A to B. I call it B, nothing. I go to C, nothing. So I've, I've, I've walked a line right down the middle of this land. Nowhere else has been impacted by human pressure. Are you trying to? Are you trying to prospect? Remain unseen, like you're using the land to to stay behind a hill, or you're yeah. not worried about it. You're well, just I'm not just right going to blaze the, out in the middle of a field. Right. I, I, if the, you know, I'm just using this as a, a good example of how not to impact your mm-hmm. land. So, okay, so ABC. So I'm at C now. I've called here, nothing. So now I'm turning around. I'm walking back from C to B. So I get halfway from C to B. I got to honor B because I've already called there. There could be something coming up. I can't just storm up on B. I got to honor it. So I stop halfway in between C and B and set up and call and see if anything has come to my calling location of B. Didn't get maybe nothing. So you get up there to B, call one time. <sighs> he's hung up. He's, he's come. He's coming to your B location. Mm-hmm. So... You've worked him. You've, you've, you've brought him out of an area you would have normally walked and got him to come to your call in B. And maybe you kill him at B, maybe you don't. So now you're going to A, same thing. You're using your calls through the middle of the property and honoring each call location. So when you call at a spot, you want to come back to it 30 minutes later. You don't just want to walk away. Mm-hmm. And that's what A, B, and C is in a nutshell. I know we're limited for time. I could go uh, do a whole talk we got with tons you. tons of time. 
I could do a whole talk about A, B, and C and, and honoring them. But if 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 you take that model and use that on your own land or any other land, you're going to kill a lot of turkeys because they're going to be everywhere else on the fringes. It's not in your line of A, B, and C. They're fine. They're they're pressure free. They don't know they're going. They don't know they're being hunted. Which is the number one rule of turkey hunting is don't let them know they're being hunted, you know. And I see this so much, especially in hunting clubs and places. Uh, turkey season starts when the leaves, they're it, everything's naked. Mm-hmm. Everybody's all fired up to go, and so these birds that you got on a track of land are the same birds you're going to have at the end of the year. So they're yours to mess up. So by being fired up and eager to go in the season, the worst thing you can do is loop the land calling, trying to find something that's going on. I want to barely enter work, work something or find, find your entrance and exit point and have that be the way that you hunt and don't ever set up in a spot that you can't get out of. Like pin yourself up a point of a field where there's a gobbler out in there and now you can't back out. Mm. You're stuck for the whole day. I mean, unless you're prepared to sit there for the whole day. Mm-hmm. The the older I get, the more I see that the turkeys are there. You can kill them, but you can't. You just cannot let them know they're being hunted. So how does this affect, like what we were talking about right in the beginning? You're talking about now, in this stage of your turkey hunting, you want to photog- photograph them and, and you're shadowing these turkeys. Mm-hmm. So now, using that ABC principle how do you find these turkeys that you're going to shadow? And then how are you staying behind them so they don't know that you're there? Well, now I try to figure, you know, I try to know the land. And if they're walking up a creek bottom or walking on the ridge, I try to do a lot of gambling. Like they're going that way. And I do a lot of checking crow calls and owl calls are my number one turkey calls mm. and get them to try to gobble without me turkey calling to them. Because as soon as I yelp at them, I've changed something. I've either made the hens upset, jealous, they're walking away, or. I've made the gobbler fired up and now he's walking to me. And I, when he was just going to keep going on his same path and allow a perfect intersection for me, mm-hmm. had I been quiet and just kept looping him. And so I hunt that way a lot now, you know, by using locator calls. But what about when you're not wanting to hunt them? You just want to shadow them and you want to follow them and you want to find out where these things are going. How are you finding the birds and not bothering them? and setting up in a position to shadow them. Because I've done that too, and I've learned a lot about it, to where I just happen to be sitting in a blind, and I hear the birds in the woods. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'm just going to go see if I can find them. And then there's trees and everything. I'm not going to get a shot, and they're moving away from me. And so I'm able to just stay, you know, 200 yards behind them and just observe for the day. And I just Mm -hmm. decide... I'm probably not going to kill these birds, but maybe I'm going to learn something that's going to help me to do better next time, right? And so, and I just got lucky that time to where the woods are quiet. I'm there's not a ton of leaves around. I'm able to just kind of stay behind these birds, and if I move slow enough and I let them get ahead of me, I can keep going. And they're making all kinds of noise and racket, you know, scratching on the ground and everything. So it's not hard, you know, to hear them over a hill. And I don't go barreling over that hill. Mm-hmm. I just let I just let them stay there, and I just know they're there, and I just listen and listen and listen. And then sometimes maybe I'll crawl up and maybe see if I can see them a little bit. But then I'll let them walk off, and then I'll go and sit, and then I can hear where they are. And I'm about 200 yards behind them or 100 yards behind them. And they, you know, I've learned a ton like that. So 
if you want to do that, how do you suggest that you find those birds and not bother them and get in a position okay. to where you can follow them? Burn a morning. Burn a morning listening to them, especially if they're gobbling, is burn a morning and gain intel. It, especially a, a virgin morning when they haven't been hunted before the season. Because most of the time, wherever they are is where they really want to be mm. before they're bookered with. A lot of times, just because it's your day to hunt, then you may have the whole rest of the season. It's best to burn a morning and gain intel than it is to go out there without that intel. Because most of the time, they're so habitual unless you get them out of their deal. And getting them out of their deal with uh, negative pressure? Yeah, over eagerness or mm -hmm. something, you know, calling too much, you know. There's a lot of things you can do to get them out of their deal. Yeah. Um, well, that's cool. That uh, I, I'm really looking forward to this this turkey season because I think I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit better than I have been in the past because I've learned a, a little bit. But I didn't get to hunt as much as I as I thought I was going to last year, and I had all these grand plans of things <laughs> I was going to be able to do, but fishing got in the way. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Um, so the uh, the the turkey guiding. How long did you do that? I did it for. Oh, I was probably about from the time I was probably 18 to 20, I think 27, 28. Really never fell out of it till I still do it now, but with kids and people who've first time turkeys, but probably 30 years old is when I stopped. Yeah. But I mean, you're, you're still doing, you're still out there and hunting with a lot of people like me that need to, need to learn a lot about turkey hunt it's not guiding necessarily it's kind of hunting with your friends or your... yeah 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 i just stopped liking to take uh, you know i got to where i want to be with people who want to be there mm -hmm. and who want to who are fired up and same with fishing who who, who want to who are just really fired up i'm really attracted to past super passionate people who 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 are super into things and the guy that I get, I mean, I'm I'm thankful for everybody that I met along the way, but the guy that I get who's there on the corporate retreat, it, and I'm out there trying as hard as I can. It's something that I love so much, and for them not to have that same fire, I can look over there and tell they're really not into it. It just I just kind of fell out of because they're asleep. <laughs> they're asleep, or you're having to tell them there's one coming or something. To keep, they're letting their gun down. And, you gotta be like, oh, I see him to keep to keep them in their game. You know, they. It's just, yeah. You just can tell their head's not there. Yeah, They're not in it. Yeah, and so you you're you're hunting a lot now. One of the things that I was very interested with you, and I didn't understand this in the beginning, and and maybe I still don't even understand it now in this point in our friendship, but I'm getting to understand it a little bit a little bit more. But you have this unbelievable passion for turkey hunting for striper fishing for bass fishing for duck hunting for deer hunting for redfish swordfish tuna fishing all of this this stuff that occupies your entire year and at first i was just kind of like i don't know how you're doing this like how are you spending so much time how did you how did you design a life or create a life that would support this kind of activity in the in in the woods in the outdoors because a lot of people do it as a as a guide right mm -hmm. like they just can't 
they couldn't even think about possibly working indoors because they just they have to be outside. So that lends itself to being a guide, and it, and people can be really good with that if they are comfortable with being a guide. If they want to be the fisherman, that doesn't always lend itself to being a good guide. They're out there all the time, but they they're they're not super patient because they're they really want to be the guy on the bow, or they yeah. really want to be the guy with the gun in his hand. So for you, how are you able to um, to fuel all of these passions? <laughs> I got out of college, and they told me to do a resume. I didn't have one. I didn't, frankly, I didn't want to do one either. And the whole job interview process just almost seemed foreign to me. <laughs> and my buddy Kim Ratliff, one of my father's friends, told me, he said, Graham, you need to be in sales, but you need to think about what you sell. You need to sell the most, you need to sell the most valuable thing that you know about. Hmm, what do I know about? I only know really about one thing, woods. I guess I'll sell land. And so right out of college, I got my real estate license and entered a market that was dominated by 60 year olds that knew way the heck more than me. All I really knew about was that the woods and the critters at that time. And this guy named Erling we- Irving Wheeler, one of the biggest orange grove farmers that there was, he's kind of sets the market for, Orange Groves in South Florida called me up on one of my listings. I had an 800 acre track in Livingston, Alabama. God just sent him to me, and and he bought that track of land. But he he said uh, this track of land is not the way I want it. I want you to fix it for me. Fix it for you. I, like what are you talking about? He's like make it really good for hunting. I was like, okay. So we brought in bulldozers, cut the timber right, did everything that I saw going on at Westervelt, just on a different scale. And uh, he sold it and made a return. So he's like, now I want you to go do this for me a lot. And so I said, okay. So we bought 3,000 acres up here near Birmingham, stripped the roads, perennialized the roads, put food plots in there, and resold it. And he, so I started getting the hardest thing about the land business is entering the land business is because it's commission-based only. It's commission. It's sink or swim. And I just got lucky to have him. And now I sell farmland all over the state. Um, really just try to specialize in the premier farmland, the, the things that are the prettiest. Um, a lot of my tracks aren't necessarily real good investments, but they're excellent wildlife habitat places and things like that. So I do that um, as my main source of income. And uh, a huge part of my life is, is one of my favorite things to do is find and find a track of land that somebody wants and and make them really smile on it make them have a good time but part of that is that you're helping them just like you did with that that gentleman to help them to create this into an outstanding hunting place absolutely and that's some of the places that that you and i have been able to go to some of these properties and you just look at these properties you're like man this is paradise for a deer or this mm-hmm. is paradise for a largemouth bass, or this is paradise for, you know, quail or pheasant or or whatever it is. And but it didn't start that way. Like that's where you come in, right? That's correct. And that's and what your niche is. Creating that habitat and creating the environment that that wildlife really love is 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 what I I sell the land, but that's my main thing that I study and I work on and I'm consumed with is how to make land better. And uh, you know, it been doing it long enough i can tell you whether the land's good or not for wildlife but taking it to that next step controlling predation making sure everything's right with perennial base you know stuff that comes up year to year uh 
make sure there's adequate bedding habitat, make sure, you know, all, there's all so much stuff. So when you go to, to talk to one of these people you, and you're like, okay, look, this could be some of the best property there is, but it's going to take some work and it's going to be about five years before it's really going to come into its own. Because like I look at uh, some of the places that you've taken me and all along the road, there have been these trees planted and they're probably about five years old now and they're getting to be, you know, they got, they got acorns all over mm-hmm. them and, and this deer paradise, right? But it didn't start out that way. Right. So when you find your perfect client, that's somebody who is willing to put in the time, money, work to make this. And, and, and do they have to understand that this is like maybe a couple of years down the road most you're really going to see? Most of the time, if they, like, um, I, I've just worked for one guy right now and I'm very thankful for him. He's, great guy i'm sure he would allow me to go do some i want to go do something else with somebody else but kind of like it's it's very situational as to whether it's going to work with their i say no a lot based on the owner's personality Mm -hmm. and based on i got to really hear their goals out and to be honest with you if the land's not real pretty i'm not i don't go you know i mean there is a way to make money that to feed my family and to make money and feed my family but i'm not into ugly land they're just not attracted to me so i don't work as hard on that track that doesn't have the bones to be a superstar i like the 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 the, the track the tracks of land that can really have that really have really good potential i like to work on that mm-hmm. and so it, it's, it's got to be the right guy and it's got to be the right track you know the right track otherwise i i like just you know a lot of my customers just want to do it their own, their self. They want to find the ultimate farm and, and do it their self, which is awesome. And, and I love to help them any way I can till the end of time. Mm-hmm. So. And then some of these, some of these pieces of land have, are producing some really big animals, deer, yeah. bass. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what you're specializing in mostly like the Southern pieces of, of land. Yeah, yep, yep. I have my hands full in Alabama. I do. But uh, I will go find a duck track in Mississippi or Arkansas, something that's really good waterfowl. Or I, I'll go, that'll, I'll, I'll do that. I'll spend a lot of time trying to find that. And that's just, it's just fun. It's like a, it's a hunt. You get to meet a lot of interesting people and see a lot of neat land. And I like that flyway, Arkansas, Mississippi flyway area. Yeah. And I like those hunting duck tracks. And you'll find some property there that's that's excellent for duck hunting and deer hunting. Yeah, I normally try to parlay that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but a lot of times you can't. Yeah, and then what about the bass fishing? Like the one place that you took me, um, there's this incredible lake, and y- you guys have figured out how to raise really big fish. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> like really big ones. Like I've been bass fishing all my life, and then I go there. And everybody there catches a, a lifetime PR. I took my dad, uh, my two boys, and and myself, and each one of us catches a, a lifetime bass. And and you're growing bass there that are 14, 15, 18 pounds. And it sounds like doc talk until you put them on a scale, until you see this yeah, happen in yeah. person. So I'm I'm inter- interested in how, in, in just how you're, your knowledge of all of this comes together, how you can create good deer land, how you can find good duck land and improve it, how you can go and, and help someone to create a, a 
bass fishing lake that can grow all of these all of these bass i mean is this just from your knowledge of of growing up in the woods and and or are you consulting with with scientists yeah you know a lot of times being biologists we just don't get along we don't we, it's not that we don't get along we're like that's red this is black we just I, I think I have a lot of, there's a lot of place for wildlife biologists, but there's also a lot of place for sweat. And somebody who's in the dirt all the time that's out there on the land, I've seen a lot of wildlife biologists broad brush thing. Huh. Because that's what they do, you know. I mean, I'm, some of my best friends are wildlife biologists, but I wouldn't let them manage my land. It's just, I think it, it's just, it, it's seeing things as I've grown up and, and paying attention to them. And for some reason that sticks in my head, whether I saw good habitat when I was 17 or I saw good habitat when I was 23, I, some reason it just, that's what I remember, you know, whether that field was shaded or which way the sun comes up in that field, whether it's going to be a good clover field, whether clover's going to burn out based on too much sun uh, I guess it's just the entanglement of experiences that I've mm-hmm. had being in the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then how many times have you had colossal failures when you're trying to do one of these things and you're planting some stuff and you're like, mm, didn't work. I mean, like you say, you say that the clover is going to burn out because of too much sun. I'm kind of thinking that that might be because you planted some clover in a field and it burned out because there was too much sun. <laughs> colossal failure. Um, biggest failure was when I, my biggest land failure was when I tried to put a lake somewhere where it shouldn't have been one time. Mm. When I got out of college, I just bought 130 acres and was going to, uh, when I was working for Mr. Wheeler, I was going to build a lake and do it all myself, make the money myself. Now, I'm going to get paid this time. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> I put the lake in the wrong spot. Like it wasn't even really meant for a lake. We had to dig it out, which I lost all my profit from the end of the land sale with traco work. We got it per, uh, permitted from the Corps of Engineers, but we were too close to the main road. All my roads were bad. I just got handed to me. You know, I've, uh, biggest mistakes I've made now that I'm starting to tell this story are hiring people that I didn't fully trust in the beginning. Huh. I think, you know, something told me right off the bat. Looking back on it now, I see it. But then I didn't see it. Like, I should have known that that sounded too good to be true. Uh-huh. Or something like that. But I think the biggest mistakes I've made is in the personnel that I've put in position. And now the biggest the thing I try to do is surround myself with really good people at whatever it may be. Timber, dirt, you know, whether it be a water issue. I try to surround myself with those even if I know, I try to find a guy that knows more than me and get him to help me with it. So mm-hmm. I try to try to surround myself with a lot of people. Do you have kind of a little crew that, that moves from place to place with you, or you work with the same kind of people over and over again? Much anymore. I used to when we were doing a lot of that. I mm-hmm. used to. Now the land uh, farm-to-farm thing has me going a lot more. I, uh, the farm that I work on now, we have, I got two other guys that help me. But back, I used to have a crew, mm-hmm. but I don't anymore. Yeah. Well, what is, uh, I know you got some exciting things coming up this year. 
What does this year look like for you? <laughs> I'm thinking about one thing in yeah, particular. Yeah, we had a baby due December 11th. <laughs> I know that. I remember that because my wife's birthday is December 12th. So yeah, uh, maybe it'll come in. Baby girl. So what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about the baby girl? Nice. Do you have I'm, any idea how your life is going to change? No, I've just been hearing this from everybody <laughs> different ways. Is that I'm about to slow down? Uh, all these things. But I welcome it. If that if that's the case, I welcome it. So, you know, I'm excited. I've wanted to be a dad for a long time. And, you know, it's just, I think my wife's really patient and welcomes the things that I do. So I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm going to be an absentee father by any means, but I, I think that I marry the right woman for the things that I do. Yeah. Well, I don't think, um, I don't know. I was, I was just absolutely determined when we were having uh, our first kids that I wasn't going to let it do the things that a lot of people were saying that it was going to do. And I can think of days when I had Turner in a car seat strapped into a car seat on the skiff of, on the bow of the skiff with me fly fishing for tarpon alone, just me and him on the bow. And he's, he's, you know, well, I guess he was in the cockpit, so he wouldn't slide off, (laughs) (laughs) but I was careful enough there. But I mean, seriously, like I would just take him for boat rides I would go out there and I'd be like, oh, a bunch of fish out here. Might as well make a cast or two. And then I'd talk to him the whole time. You know, he's just a little kid, just a little baby in that car seat. I'm like, look, I'm going to make a cast here and, and uh, you know, catch a tarpon with the baby there. And um, But I was just determined, like, you know, we're going to do the same kind of things that we always did. We're going to go out to restaurants. We're, gonna, we're going to, uh, I'm going to be able to go fishing. I'm going to take him with me all the time. And then it was Hayden and then it was Hannah. And then I, I don't know. I think that, uh, I think it opened up a, a very different, I mean, well, it definitely will open up a very different chapter of your life because now you are going to be going and doing a lot of these same things. And just like we opened this conversation with now you're interested in taking pictures of turkeys and now you're interested in taking pictures of deer or whatever and how that changes the way that you go in. You're not just going into shoot one and and be done with a day now taking pictures of them requires something entirely different out of you and your woodsman skills and everything so that you can go in there and get that picture with the light right and everything like that when you have kids it seems like that does a similar thing because now you're going and you're like okay where can i go that is going to be a short walk in we're going to be able to be there for less than 30 minutes and I'm going to be able to show them a turkey. We may not kill one. I just want to show them one, right? And then then you start thinking about that differently. And then it's like, where can we go to where your problem with this one is going to be, where can I go so that I can catch a fish within five minutes that's not going to pull this kid in because you're fishing holes uh <laughs> You don't want to hook them up to a 14 pound bass on the first, on the first try. You know, you want, you want some small fish and, and all of a sudden, all of these, these experiences are different and it makes you look at fishing and hunting very differently. And now you're trying to, uh, you go from being a world-class guide, uh, after a Boone and Crockett deer or after, you know, the biggest turkey on the land to now that's too much, too quick. Now we need to go and we need to look for turkey footprints 
and we need to, you know, look for places in the woods where the turkeys have been and start to like teach and educate this baby. Like I used to carry Turner around and, and all, all the kids in the, the Bajorn thing in the, in the front and they're facing you and you're just out doing your thing, man. You're riding the tractor. They're with you. You're walking the land. They're with you. You're, you're fishing. They're with you. And then soon enough, when like a big milestone is when they're not they're not facing you, they can turn around. They get big enough to where they can turn around. Now they can see out in front, you know. And that was a huge milestone. But but the point being is that you need to take them with you. Like that's that's what you're all about, man. You're all about the outdoors. That's what you. That's your one of your gifts to give to to this new person that's going to be in your life. But it makes you think about. All of this stuff, it's, it's almost the same, but even a little bit different and more complicated, obviously, than learning to take pictures of, of these fish or, or turkeys or deer or whatever. Now you have to go into this as, as, you know, how am I going to do this in a short period of time? Because we have, a, we have an attention span issue to deal with, and it's very short. And, you know, just when you need to be quiet, they're going to do something. <laughs> They're going to do something that's not quiet, you know, and I don't know. I just, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was great. And uh, all of a sudden I started fishing a lot different. And then I started, you know, even in my guide business, I was like, you know what? I want to, I want to take more families fishing because I enjoyed doing this with the kids. And I was like, you know, kids need this. They need to experience this. And and I realized if somebody comes down here with, with some little kids what in the world, where are they going to go? Like nobody has the right boat for this. You don't want to take a, a little kid in a skiff. Very few people had bay boats at the time. So it's like, yeah, you know, I, I, I just thought it was great. It was a great break for me because it was super easy. And uh, I could go out there and teach these kids how to fish. My best idea was shark fishing birthday parties. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but it only happened once. <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to replicate and scale it. But the kids that went on the shark fishing birthday party thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> Let me ask you something, Dom. I've been wanting to ask you this all the time. And I, you know, we talked about, I, I really hadn't been around tarpon and I dang sure didn't know that there were so many in my home state of Alabama. But I remember saying, when are you going to take me to taste tarpon and all this stuff? Whenever uh-huh. we fish, I think I just wore you out about it. And when I finally experienced it, my buddy Kurt took me to really show me how they eat. When was the first time you saw a tarpon really close and eat? And and where were you? I know you know exactly. The- yeah, um, it was probably on one of the first ones I ever caught. Um, and the first tarpon I ever caught was in the Cayman Islands. And uh, I had gone down there and I just learned that there were tarpon around. There was one place, a restaurant that you could fish in the light at night and you could get next to this restaurant and, and you could fish these, these fish and you could see them eat and you could see them do what they did. And then there were these, these inland ponds, which probably now are covered with uh, hotels and, and stuff there, but you could wade around in these inland ponds. And I was seeing the baby tarpon eat and, um, and, and I could see like what they were doing and it was a different eat for sure. And it was a different hook set and it was a different, the whole thing was different. And I managed to, you know, catch a couple, but it really wasn't until I got to Key West and, uh, and had experience with larger fish that, that I was, I got really, really, really overwhelmingly 
uh, involved and passionate about catching the tarpon. Um, but that time that you see the first one clearly eat something within six or eight feet of the, of the rod tip, that's, that's life changing. And (laughs) I mean, I'm sure that's what you experienced this year. Um, that will make anyone shake, you know? Um, but I, I learned a lot that first, my first year in, in Key West and, and, uh, learned a lot about the tarpon, but it wasn't, it wasn't for a few more years to where I started putting together all the pieces, you know, like you, you learn a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there. And, and most of what I was doing or almost entirely what I was doing at that point was fly fishing. And then, you know, later in my career, I started to bait fish for the tarpon and fish for them with lures and different, different techniques. And then even then again, the pieces started coming together and, and I started to understand what these tarpon were wanting by fishing bait. I became a better fly fisherman by fishing lures. I became a better bait fisherman by fishing fly. I was better at, at both. Like, I think that, that doing a lot of different types of fishing definitely helps you to understand a little bit more what you're trying to do with that lure or what you're trying to do with the live bait or what you're trying to do with the fly. So I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, but I, I do feel like the more experience you have and the more you can start to put all these different pieces together, the more you, the better you get at all of it. Yeah. That's, well, that's what just, just hooked me is so much the most, it's the most like hunting, especially, you know, seeing a tarpon approach and knowing yeah. you're getting ready to get a shot and. It's the most like hunting of any form of fishing that I've ever been a part of. Well, when you were talking about turkey hunting and you're like, the number one rule of turkey hunting is don't let them know that they're being hunted. Yeah. Well, yeah that's I definitely that. the number one, number one rule of tarpon fishing yeah. too, is you have to remain, and you always talk about in, in turkey hunting, you're like, I want to stay outside of the bubble. And you want, and, and that meaning that you feel as though that turkey has a 360 degree radius around him that he knows every single thing that's going on. He can hear, he can see, and, and, and you want to stay outside of that. You use the, use the ground, use the hills to, to cover you. You're, you're not going to show yourself to him. You're not going to let him hear you. You're going to stay outside of the bubble. Mm -hmm. Uh, or you can use darkness to get inside the bubble and get there. Tarpon fishing is very similar to that in that, I used to leave the dock at, at uh, 5 a.m. and I would get to these places in the dark and be there just like turkey hunting because I knew that's where they would be. And I would get in there real easy and real still. And we would just sit there until the light would come up enough to where we could see where these fish were because they were rolling and, and, uh, and you get the first crack at them and you could, you could uh, anthropomorphize them, you know, thinking like, Okay, this is what they're doing. And my my favorite customer, Fitz Coker, he would always say, "All right, we're about to mess up the card game. They've been in here playing poker all night long, and this is you know this is the last this is the last hand. You know, just as the sun's starting to crack the horizon, and you throw the fly in there, and it's on almost a hundred percent you're going to get eaten. And then after that, the next cast is going to be about a forty percent." chance that you're going to get eaten and then after the, if the, you get bit on that one then it's like a five percent chance that you're going to get the eaten. lights increasing yeah as okay. the lights yeah. increasing but you also messed them up 
Mm-hmm. Now, there might be a group over here that's not messed up, and it's going to be a 100% chance that yeah. you can get to them. But the the number one rule of tarpon fishing is that you don't want them to know that they're being fished for. You don't want them to feel the boat. You don't want them to see the line. You don't want them to, to do anything. And a lot of people, I think, with with bait, lures, and fly are trying to present the fly or the bait or the lure to the fish. My feeling is you don't want to do that. You don't want to present the fly to them. You want them to find the fly. You want them to find the bait. You want them to find the lure. Like you want them to just be doing their thing and out of the corner of their eye, they're like, what's that? And then they go over there and you get a, a, a perfect eat, right? And it's not like a real angry eat and it's not like uh um what i like is when when the fish is there and i talked about this on uh, i think on april Vokey's podcast when i was on her podcast we were talking about this and i was like i'm i'm only interested at this point in my career what really gets me excited about fishing especially tarpon fishing is that when you it's not just getting the bite anymore it's not just catching a fish it is seeing a fish and you you throw a like if there's if there's four or five fish sitting there laid up and you throw a cast out there and you use the current to kind of ease the fly to them and you're hoping the fish that you're fishing for is that lead fish or the second fish in line or whatever and you want just to give that fly just enough animation to where they actually feel it or something and they look up and they're like oh what's that and they just ease over there and they just sip it like just like it's completely natural it's 100% they didn't change their behavior they didn't mm. they didn't go you know it didn't piss them off it didn't it didn't you know aggravate them in any way and they take a big swipe at it i mean earlier i would have been like oh that's super cool but like trout fishing like like in the in the trout in a trout stream it's the easiest you know to uh to illustrate this the trap you got a you got a bunch of insects on the surface and they're they're coming down and so this fish has just a stream of food coming down there he's sitting motionless in the or stationary in the stream and the the river is bringing him all this food and he's just you know eating in a rhythmic way well when i throw my fly over there I want him to be eating in a rhythmic way mm-hmm. and just to keep doing exactly what he was doing before. That way he looks at it. He doesn't he doesn't go like eat, eat, oh here's mine, and stands on his tail like this and then yeah. you know grabs yeah. it. That he didn't like something about it wasn't right. You got him to eat it, but it wasn't right. Yeah. It wasn't perfect. And when they just do something, I don't care if it's a trout or a tarpon or a redfish or a shark or tuna or whatever it is, I want them, I want to be able to have them eat just like they're eating everything else. Mm-hmm. Like when you got pilchards and you're, you're throwing live pilchards out there and the tuna just start coming in and they just eat them and it's just, it's just so effortless. They just come in. They're not just crashing them. They just come in and mm, got it. Mm-hmm. And then you throw your fly out there and they crash at it. That's not, ex- I mean, I'll take it, of course. Mm-hmm. But when they come in and they eat it just like they ate that pilchard, that's like, like nothing ever happened. Yeah. That's like, man, I got the right fly. I've, I've made it look just like the pilchard out there. And it's the same with your stripers or anything else. It's like when they come in and they do that same thing that they're doing, 
that's when it gets really exciting. I don't know, but what was your experience with the tarpon this year? I found out that I how much more effective I was out of that little kayak with the trolling motor than I found out first I need a flats boat that I can go, especially for beach tarpon. Yeah. And I found out, Tom, I went almost every day once my buddy showed me I would go four days. <laughs> and I sit out there in my kayak, and I'm there. I don't have anywhere else to run in that kayak. Uh-huh. I'm there. I'm overlaying my tides. I'm looking at everything. I'm there. I, I look at Hilton's and find where the pretty water is on the beach. I get my shot that night. Made me drive two more hours down the beach to get to prettier water. But I was like the visual thing of tarpon fishing. In Orange Beach, it's real chocolate water. You can fan out where you think they're migrating and get bit. But that wasn't really, didn't even have that much fun doing that. Mm-hmm. Getting just a bite. Having the kayak, being able to push it off and then, you know, see them coming, like you're saying, and slide, slide a bait around them. They don't know what's going on and have them eat it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, and being and, there on the right tide at the right time. I could just see there's so much things I have to learn. So it's real fun for me because it's new. But I can tell that it's going to be a real thing for the rest of our life. We're pretty strong. Yeah. Now, what I think that your next evolution will be is that the kayak is really good when the weather's when the weather allows it but you're going to get down there a lot of days and there's going to be an onshore wind or whatever and and you're going to be out there in the kayak and you're going to be like it's too much the fish are out there and they're biting it's too much like i'm taking taking waves over the over the kayak and so then you're going to want a boat and then it's then then the next evolution is is the boat and then figuring out how you can do just as well with the boat as you can with the kayak. Cause you're, you're exactly right. There are huge advantages to the kayak, but there's also huge advantages to a boat with a 90 horsepower motor, mm-hmm. because now you can move a lot further and this spot's not happening. You can move over here and then you can move over there, but you don't have the stealth, but you'll learn the stealth. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, well, even that one has limitations now I need a bigger live well or I want a bigger live well. And then that's where the bay boat comes in. And then, then now I can fish under any conditions. That seems to be the, the kind of different evolutions. And it's not that the bay boat is the, is the be all end all because the skiff has advantages over the bay boat and the kayak has advantages over the skiff. And, you know, it, it's just, it, it, it almost comes to a, a, a point of, do I want to have to, sit there and stare out at the ocean and say too rough can't go Mm -hmm. and then you're kind of like i gotta have the boat but maybe you have both i mean maybe you have the boat and the kayak well we do i have a lot of friends that have boats and uh i went tarpon fishing on some rough days i hooked some yeah in boats on rough days but just didn't do it for me like the slick days and i have a job where i can go and look and go on the best days when I want to, I could go there. It's my fault if I'm not there. And so I just I haven't gone many rough days simply because I just choose not, to, you know, mm-hmm. so I really don't know much about even in the rough stuff. Yeah. Well, you'll, you'll learn really quick. Uh, what I could tell is you, you, you get into the tarpon fishing. It'll be just like turkey hunting for you. You'll be, you'll I be, just found out this spot in the Mobile Bay where you can go around for a hard south blow where my buddy's been catching them when it's rough yeah like that is it in the lee yeah it's this this little yeah. hidden area all this bait stacks up there i'm so fired up about getting over in that area it's just i don't know I'm, and this stupid triple tail they got me by the tail 
I mean, it's like you dang sure don't want to bring a new fisherman triple tail fish. That's like Groundhog Day times 20. Yeah, and you find big ones up there. We we have small triple tail on the Keys, but uh, there are some super big ones up in Louisiana and, and the Panhandle, and I'm sure Alabama. I've never yeah. fished for them there, but yeah, those are those are fun to fish for. You'll be doing great when with the bay boat or or any kind of boat with a tower. Yeah, that's you just start the, running, yeah. and and you'll you'll cover ten times as much water fast. Yeah, somebody about a triple tail. I know, what triple tail? I didn't even heard about triple. They ever eat everybody's one? so quiet about it. Over oh, really? There. They don't like, like talking about. Yeah. It? How yeah. big do they get? Big, huge, like 13, big, 14 big. pounds. Like they caught a no. Uh, I think somebody called a 20, 30 pounder. Thirty weeks, pounder, yeah. something like that. Good night. Twenty pounders are common. Lots of twenties. You know, you, you're more likely to catch one over twelve than you are under, and especially in the Mobile Bay area. Mm-hmm. But you know, every time you see those monsters, you're not you're halfway ready. Yeah, man. I tell you what, those those things eat good. They. That's for my grand. Every time I see one, I'm like, I got to get this to my grandmother. I got to get him, shoot him with a bow, net him, do whatever we got to do. Let's get him. And uh, most of the time, they're slicker than you are. Uh huh. <laughs> There's a fish you don't want to let them know you're around them. Yeah, they yeah. sink down. I yeah. learned a lot about those the last time Rich and I were fishing for them, and we we would they would they would start to sink down, and we would just throw in and let it sink all the way down. Like if it was 17 feet deep, we'd just let it go all the way down, and before it hit the bottom, they they just follow it down like this and then yeah. then they start feeling safe because they're not on the surface anymore and we would we were starting to catch them like that and we had never done that before yeah like once they disappeared we're like oh they're gone but then we just throw in there with a jig and just let it drop down and before that thing hit the bottom we'd usually get the bite that was that was a day where we learned a lot so in the times that we've uh been sitting around the campfire at these hunting hunting trips and fishing trips that we've done you've had some pretty funny stories and I want to know the funniest outdoor story that you can remember. It has to be when I jumped out of the uh, moving vehicle in Nebraska to try to grab a Jake <laughs> and have five-inch screws in my ankle still to this day. That has to be. That's the funniest? I mean, maybe it wasn't funny at the time when I was rolling, cartwheeling down the road. But oh, uh, I always wanted to grab a turkey. And we were in Nebraska, and it's, I guess I was 21 or something. It was a, I just killed a Grand Slam for the year and had one more turkey tag. And I saw this Jake. It was pinned on the side of the road in between us and the fence. Told the guy, Brett, speed up, Brett. I'll get up next there. Get up next to him and jump out. He's not going, he's stuck between the fence and the road. So I stand on the running board. We're going down the road and we're getting close now, 30 yards. He's, doing 70 miles an hour down this road and we start to slow down well my sense slowing down since he was going so fast way out the wind so i think i jumped out we we're probably going 15 miles an hour instead of five and i remember my feet hit me in the butt oh. and i planted and when i planted that was it i just poof, down <laughs> and i look at my ankle and it was like one of those football injuries that they would replay <laughs> so the next morning so the turkey flew off got away the next morning where i had roosted the turkey that night so i kept going that day and we roosted a turkey and i had 
I saw I could see through the binos he had a big old monster, like inch and a half sparks, big sparks for a for a Merriam turkey up there, big. Mm-hmm. And we were hunting this cattle farm, and I had to get across to the other side. And I remember my buddy John and my buddy Craig carrying me in on each side of their arm <laughs> a mile through this field to get over there to it. And long story short, the turkey came out. We killed an inch and a half, spurs, and limping back. I just thought, I remember thinking that day how dumb that was, how stupid that was. But I also remember how thankful I was for having good friends who would carry me to that point. So they carried you because that was the end of the Grand Slam? I'd already killed a Grand Slam on a different turkey, but it was a, he had an inch and a half spurs. I had one more tag. And it was, I think it's the biggest spurred turkey. I've called up a lot of inch and a half spurred turkeys that other people shoot, but I've never really get to shoot them myself. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the only inch and a half spurred turkey that I have. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And you did that with a broken leg? Broken foot? Broken foot. With the broken foot. Yeah, that's what it says <laughs> at the end of the video. <laughs> oh, I guess you've seen the, the video. Yeah, I saw it. You've got a lot of funny stories, man. We'll get back to those on another one, but. So what do you what do you anticipate for this year? Do you have what are your what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish this year as far as your hunting and fishing? We didn't even talk about the tuna fishing. I mean, <laughs> you're going down there and, and tuna fishing with a team, right? At these big tournaments. Well, they're over with for the year. I went. I woke up at one o'clock. Today is being what Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, last Thursday, I woke up at one. Drove to Orange Beach. Got on the boat about six. We loaded, blacked out the well with hardtails, started limping out towards the tuna ground where we knew they were. I mean, we knew they were there this day. <sighs> Lightning clouded up. We didn't get it to go. It turned around. But there are several north winds at the end of this week, so I'm hoping to probably going to go like Friday, Saturday. Or now, will that is days. that always associated with a tournament, or, or you'll just go whenever the fish is good? <sighs> To be honest with you, I'll probably not do any more tournaments. They like marlin fishing. I like tuna fishing. You know, we're using tuna for bait. And I'm, I just like tuna fishing. I don't know. The the marlin's really neat, but I just, maybe it's just, I don't know. There's something about a yellowfin tuna, the way it takes off running. That I mean, the marlin jumps, they do all kinds of cool things. And I'm sure there's lots of people if you polled the mass majority of people, they would rather catch a blue marlin than a yellowfin tuna. But tuna is just something that I've, you know, kind of tried to learn about. Mm-hmm. How many big marlin have, have you been part of? I don't even know that. A lot? Mm-hmm. Probably a lot. Yeah. Well, not a, not a whole ton. Because uh, in the tournaments, most of the fish that we, you either catch them or, or break them off, they're huge. Mm-hmm. But, uh, seen a lot of four five four hundreds you know stuff like that but there's marlin teams out there now tom that they're so good the guys that i fish with like my buddy wilkes fishes on the done deal it's a it's a thing of beauty the way they do it the, the system they do it and they go out there and they're coming back they got him like hmm. and and so i just you know it's like i'm not saying that can enter the tournament and beat the done deal, but it'd be way better to enter the tournament and fish yellowfin <laughs> and, and try to get something out of this. Yeah. Because the done deal is, is pretty much exactly that done deal. They're going to win. I mean, they're, they're, they fish every day. They fish different countries. They, one of the main things that I see in Marlin tournaments is, is, is not, if everybody gets bit, 
most most everybody out there is doing the same thing. It's who's closing. Yeah. You know, most of these are kill tournaments. Who's going to get that fish in the boat? And who's actually going to close the deal? And that's what separates the men from the boys, you know, in that in that game. Yeah. It's, it's you hear, oh, we had one on. We had one on. We had he broke us or you don't hear much of that out of the What do you think the difference is? Technique, rigging, teamwork, you know, remaining calm, not overanalyzing things, keeping it simple. You know, I just think it's a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Focusing on focusing on the most important thing. I think, you know, it, it's hard to even imagine that at that level they wouldn't be focusing on the most important thing, which is finishing the deal. But I remember when we first started, uh, when I first started getting into the tournaments in in the Keys, you just start realizing that closing the deal is the most important. Like you you would be back at the dock and you would hear a lot of people, oh, we got we got fifty shots today but they didn't, they don't have a fish on the board. Right. And it wasn't about who had the best fishing experience. It was about who caught the fish. So the guy that saw one fish and caught it was doing way better than the person that had 50 shot. Well, on a charter, which is better? I don't know. Sometimes 50 shots is better, you know, but I mean, I'd rather have 50 shots and not catch one than just have one shot and catch one in an eight hour period. But in a tournament, it's all it nothing else matters like it's on, the only thing that matters is getting the fish in the boat and you know either getting a picture of them or in that case bringing them back and there's just a, there's like a just a different mindset that that those guys are focused on every single thing that they can do to close that deal and everything else is cast out the window they don't care if they see, don't see any fish they don't care if they fish you know, if it's an eight hour day, they don't care if they go seven hours without, without a bite, they want that one bite and they're going to put that fish in the boat and everything is associated with that. Not that everybody else isn't doing that, but those guys have obviously figured out something that is a little bit different in their teamwork in their rigging in something that's happening that is giving them way more, uh, you know, a little bit of an edge over the field. Of, of over a very very competitive field, but the, I always I would always think it's interesting when when you have one one team one boat that is doing something different it in such cool. a competitive field. Really cool. It's really yeah. neat to see, and especially to see them repeat and and keep keep performing because most of the time you see the winning boats. I mean, we all have this app called Hilton's, or you have rip charts where you get the chlorophyll shots. It shows you the, where the pretty water is. You have altimetry shot where you can overlay the updwelling or downwelling. So everybody shrinks the ocean down to a pretty small, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're normally going to be floating around your competitors, especially if you're in the right spot. So when everybody's normally doing the same thing. But yet, there's certain boats that definitely come out on top 80, 90% of the time. They're doing something different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's probably very subtle, but it's a, it's, yeah, I think it's a lighter leader, you know, every, you know, different thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. What about your hunting? Do you have anything that you're excited about for this year? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to. See the kids it's at the farm I manage. They're getting bows, so I'm excited to see them start bow hunting. 
excited to watch fawns grow up see where these certain deer that i've been looking at from last year see what they really do when they come out of velvet i'm fired up about that i'm sure i'll go duck hunting and do those kind of things but uh, most things i'm fired up about is watching my crops grow watching the herd of deer the herd of deer and turkeys that i work on grow and kids that i'm associated with grow and you know that's mainly what i'm fired up the most about hunting mm-hmm. hunting season i don't really have any me that much in hunting anymore at all maybe it is i have me time is seeing daylight you seeing the sun rise and that type of deal but i guess it seems like it's always it's always there's always some kind of competition to it like are the weeds going to beat me in my clover field <laughs> are the coyotes going to eat my phones or or uh is the wind going to win today red fishing is is, it, is you know all everything's like or is my neighbor going to have a better dove field than me? Is is my? I wonder if his. I wonder if he's been working harder than me, and and that his field's better. And it, it's just like, or some he's going to offer the dove something that I don't have, or maybe I got too much weed invasion in this pot, or so. I'm I just. I'm, I look forward to all the competitions in the outdoors all the time. I do. I don't know how you do it. I honestly don't. I mean, you just in what you just were talking about. You're 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 going back and forth between, you know, deep ocean, shallow ocean, dove fields, deer, coyotes, turkeys. I mean, I seriously don't know how you manage your time. Uh, and that's one of the most intriguing things about you is is just the way that you're able to manage your time and stay on top of all of these things, have the knowledge to be able to, um, to be on the top of the game or, or right there. And then to, to share that with others. And that's really what you're, that's really what you're, you're really good at. If you ask me is, is the sharing with others part. Well, I sure have enjoyed, uh, I'm glad you called me to go striper fishing that day because certainly I had expectations on that day and, they definitely exceeded my expectations getting to know you and your family. It's been a lot. It's been a fun time, you know. It, yeah. It really yeah, has. It's fun. Well, that's just the beginning of, of the, uh, of the experiences. Um, we, we got a lot more. So got I saw Turner killed his first elk on a guided hunt. That's so big. Yeah. It, well, well, okay. Cooster. So, so yes, he, it was his first guided hunt, but he was a, uh, an apprentice. Yeah. And he's just kind of shadowing this other guy. Awesome. But, he gets to go and see that happen. So my son Turner is uh, is a guide at um, Sage Peak Outfitters in Montana. They're out at um, uh, out of Big Sky in the Lee Metcalf Wilderness, and this is his first year of doing that. And he went on his first hunt this week. He's on his second hunt, but on the first hunt, it went all. It was five day hunt, I guess. They went four days with nothing not being able to close a deal on the morning of the fifth day they they did it they got it done he got to see this happen so he's going to shadow again this week and then next week he's on his own that's awesome and uh i mean i just remember what that was like i i when i went to the keys i spent a lot of time time trying to catch a permit on fly and was very unsuccessful. I mean, it wasn't even close to happening. And I could throw my fly out there and I could have fish look at it. I scared a lot of fish. Um, it was not really close to happening. And I was trying to do it by myself and it was really, really difficult. 
And uh, then I fished with this guy, Peter Corbin. And I liked Peter. He was an artist. And Peter invited me to go on Marshall Cutchin's boat. And Marshall Cutchin was the best guide uh, in Key West at the time. And Peter invited me to go so I could be a model for one of these photo- photographs that he was going to take. And he wanted to take some photographs of, of Marshall with an angler on the bow. And then that turns into a painting. Then he sells that. So, But before we did the photography piece of this day, we, Peter and Marshall were just on basically a guided trip. And so I'm sitting on the cooler and I'm watching all this happen. And Marshall just casually um, pulls into the flat, same flat I fished a whole bunch of times. He, you know, pushes a couple times on the push pole and he goes, yeah, we're looking for permit here. And uh, he goes, oh, there's one right there. And he goes, why don't you just make a roll cast to it? And everything was super patient and calm and i couldn't even believe how this was going and peter goes oh right there and he makes a roll cast to it and he goes oh i've got him and it just happened like that it happened and i just am sitting there watching this whole thing happen and i am floored at how easy it was and how calm marshall stayed and how it was just like a day-to-day occurrence for him which it was and I had been working for a year to try to get this to happen, and it had not happened. Of course, there was a big difference. There's a guide involved. There's an angler involved. Everybody's ready. I'm trying to do this on my own. <laughs> but the point being is that seeing something like that happen gave me ultra confidence that now it was possible and that it could happen. And that's what I'm sure that this did for Turner, of going out there, watching this happen, watching this elk come in. The guy shot him at 74 yards with a bow, and the broadhead went straight through the elk. I mean, it it was a good shot. The guy was a very, very accomplished hunter. Just for Turner to be part of that and to see that is, I think, is going to have a a big, big, big impact on him and his confidence of, okay, well, I've seen it done once. I know it can be done. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, but yeah, he's he's super excited and and uh, I'm super proud of him because you know it's it's one of these things that he he kind of came to me and he's like, Dad, I wanna I want to be an elk hunting guide, and I said, Okay, well, how are you going to do that? And he said, Well, I don't know. And I said, Okay, well, are you looking for advice? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I am. Like, what would you do? And I said, um, okay, well, if I were you, I would write a letter a day, seven letters a week. And he says, okay, well, what do I say? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what you say, but you need to write seven letters a week. That's a letter a day. And he said, well, who do I write them to? And I said, I don't know. Like, who do you think you should write them to? And he goes, mm, maybe some of the outfitters that, that are in these areas that I want to hunt. I said, yeah, that's a good start, man. Why don't you do that? Why don't you write a letter introducing yourself to these outfitters? And if you write seven this week and you write seven next week and you write seven the week after that and seven the week after that, all of a sudden you're going to have a lot of letters out there and you're going to get better at writing letters each one of these times. And he's like, well, what if they say no? I said, oh, most of them are going to say no. I mean, most of them, absolutely most of them. 
And uh, I said, but there'll, there'll be people and that, you, that you're going to get this letter to them at a time when a guide has quit or they weren't going to be able to hunt or they're a guide short this year or something. There'll be a good time for one of them. And you just need to keep writing these letters and keep introducing yourself to these people and keep an open mind. And, and when you're writing these letters, tell them that you'll do whatever. And, you know, Turner has, has horse experience. Like for the last two summers, he's been a wrangler. Mm-hmm. And so that really makes a big difference because uh, from a lot of people, like Rich went on a, a, a guided elk hunting trip, and he said that the horses were the worst part of it, that nobody wanted to deal with the horses, and the horses were a big pain in the butt to everybody. Well, that's what Turner knows. So I was like, well, that's, your, that's one of your skills that you have is you're good with horses, and you can, and I bet you, that somebody is going to want a guide that is also good with horses. And so he just started writing letters, and it didn't take long. It didn't take long, and he had two or three uh, outfitters that were interested and willing to talk to him. And I said, just, you know, the only the only other piece of advice I can give you is just be straight up and honest with what your skill level is and what your experience level is, and just let them know. This is your first time. You're interested in this. You'll work. You'll do whatever. But this is your first time. And so he got in with a really good group that fully understands where he is in his hunting career. You know, they're putting him in this apprentice position and not just throwing him to the wolves. But I think it's, I think it's really good for him. And he's doing what you did. He's taken this semester off and Mm -hmm. elk hunting. And that's something that we've talked about too. I'm like, why do you think that you have to do a conventional school year? You can go to school from, from January through May, mm-hmm. and then you could go to summer school if you want to, and then you could take the fall semester off. And he was just like, "Really, I could?" Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, why not? I mean, why not? There's no, there's no rules. You can do whatever you want to. And so he, he started making that happen. But I was just so proud of him that he had a dream that he wanted to do, whatever that dream may be. It just so happens that it was hunting that he made it happen because it's hard to do. I mean, it really is hard to do. Yeah. If you're not, if, if you go into a guiding uh, <clears throat> deal, I've had guys come in, check, you know, ask me every year if they can help me guide. First thing I would do is look for a personality similar to terms. Somebody who wants to learn, really good with people. And, uh, you know, that even if he does know, he's not going to be a know-it-all. And that, what I like, it, he would be a, a immediate hire for somebody like for somebody who's got fire i'd rather hire somebody with fire that wants to learn than somebody that has that knows everything and uh is an expert yeah yeah for sure and and somebody that's willing to do the dirty work not because you don't want to do the dirty work but in my experience of of guiding and outfitting you know when i went out west and i was a guide out west started out as what we called the swamper and the swamper did everything we changed like we changed it. the bearings you took you took firewood to camp in a boat you got the camp set up you cooked you you know you did all the all the dirty work ran shuttles and eventually you they'd let you do a little guiding but being the swamper was the best thing ever because you learned that business from the ground up and you learned what the you know what challenges the cook had and you learned you know how the camp should be kept clean and you learned all these things so that when you became the guide 
you could help the cook out a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, little things like, hey, can I go get you some water out of the spring? Doesn't matter. But that's huge to somebody that's trying to cook a meal over a campfire. And if you don't, if you've never been the swamper, you don't understand that that's that's really hard to leave these steaks on the grill right now and run you know, 200 yards to the spring and get a bucket of water. Now you come back, the steaks are all burnt. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's one thing after another Dutch oven cooking or something like that. You really got to keep your eye on that. So just doing something as simple as just understanding what goes into all these different jobs, I think is one of the most important things that anybody that's getting into the outfitting or guiding could possibly do. Understanding what it takes to change bearings on six trailers, like, that's a two day job at least it's, it's even if you have the right tools and you're good at it, which I was, I had neither. Um, so it was more like a two week job, but all of those things. And that's what Turner has, has been able to do. And, and he's not afraid of that. Like shovel horse poop, no problem. I'm, I'm fine with it. And then he can do some other things, but he was happy about this year. He said that, that his position was just guiding and that he didn't have to do anything else. And he was happy about that because for the last couple of summers, he's been kind of the everything guy, yeah. but he's, he's, he's doing great. Looking forward. To, he should be getting back in the next day or so. So I'm looking forward to oh, nice. to hearing from him and see if he had a productive second trip. Nice. And, uh, yeah. We'll have to get out there one day and go, go kill an elk. He said him. he was hoping to get you out there. I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to go November. Nice. Yeah. It's going to be cold, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to try to go. And if I can, he was like, you know, what are we, you know, you want to kill one with big horns or whatever. I said, whatever, man, just, I want the highest probability of, of having, uh, sealing the deal with my son. I think that'd just be super cool. You yeah, know, whether that's too. a cow or yeah, whatever. A spike or whatever it is, but I'll, I'll look forward to it. Well, we'll bring this one to a close and we'll definitely do this one again with Graham Taylor. Graham, how can people follow you and get in touch with you? What's your social media? Uh, the best place to get in touch with me is uh, Graham Taylor Outdoors on Instagram. Um, I have Alabama land, but that's just strictly uh, my land stuff. Graham Taylor Outdoors is one I check the most, and I try to reply to any messages or anything that anybody sends me. All right. And Instagram, that's your favorite? Yeah, I don't fool around that much with Facebook or any of that, but uh, Instagram is my definitely my favorite. All right. Graham Taylor, world-class turkey hunter all around good guy and he has matured and has gotten much uh wiser does not jump out of vehicles going 15 to 20 miles an hour anymore promise (laughs) anyway we're also going to do a how-to tuesday with graham so stay tuned for that until next week we'll see you later man i love talking to graham i learn something every single time graham is a great hunting buddy of mine a great fishing buddy of mine and somebody that never disappoints in his ability to not only teach me a thing or two, but also being open-minded and willing to learn from anyone. He will be asking my son questions about hunting and fishing and what he observed through the day and see if he can gain some insight. He's going to try to learn from anyone. And really, to me, those are the type of people that I want to surround myself with. People who are interested in learning, people who keep an open mind, and people who realize the more you learn, the more there is to learn, because that's what it's all about in this world, in this um, outdoor pursuit. 
it just seems like the more the more I learn, the more I realize, boy, there's a lot to learn. And that's what makes it fun for me. I hope it makes it fun for you. Get out there and keep learning. If you could, rate and review the show on iTunes. Send me an email at podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. And we will see you next week. See you. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents. Anywhere, anytime, and on any device.